near the Pleasant Hill BART station in Interstate 680. Log on to Pacifica.org for details. It's 3 o'clock, and it's, and it's um, 94.1 KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's time for Cover to Cover, open book. Good afternoon, and welcome to Cover to Cover, open book, a celebration of the written word and the arts. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Today, we bring you an encore presentation of an interview with Dr. Shakti Butler about her film, Mirrors of Privilege, Making Whiteness Visible. Later, we'll talk to Bill Santiago and Alana Devich, comedians who are part of the third annual George Bush Going Away Party. Stay with us. What do white people have to say about racism? Dr. Shakti Butler explores this question in her latest film, Mirrors of Privilege, Making Whiteness Visible, a documentary for those that are interested in justice, spiritual growth, and community making. It features experiences of white men and women who have worked to gain insight into what it means to challenge notions of racism and white supremacy in the United States. I had the opportunity to interview her earlier this year, where Dr. Butler started by describing the film. This new film actually features the experiences of stories of white women and men who have worked to gain insight into what it means to challenge notions of racism and white supremacy in the United States. And so what they're really doing is sharing their stories about how they became aware of issues of race and how they move through all the places where white people can tend to get stuck when dealing with issues of race. So they're actually teaching as they share their stories. Who do you see your audience being? Well, you know, my experience has been that it's everybody. And by everybody, I mean, yes, we do work a lot within the educational system, college systems, but also in nonprofit organizations and, you know, spiritual and religious institutions and government institutions because we're actually dealing with a subject that affects everybody. So we have a very broad audience. I know that you have included quite a few of white men and women that have made race an issue in their political work. What is important about white people acknowledging racism and the role of whiteness? Mm -hmm. I believe and, and my experience has been that normally when we're having conversations about race, Or when there's a conversation about oppression, whoever the target group is, they are always in the position where they're explaining their story, explaining their situation, explaining how they're affected. And, of course, racism is a dynamic that involves more than the people who are affected by it. It's by the people who are also participating in creating systems that... Uh, keep us from living in a society that's equitable. And in this particular case, those people are white people. And I think it's very important for white people to be able to teach for, I'll say, two primary reasons. One, because they can talk about their experience of what it means to be white in a way that I can't. And so they can capture the ear of other white people in a way that I cannot. 
And secondly, because I think it's empowering for white people to be able to say, yes, this is what's going on. This is how we participate in the system. And now, because I'm conscious about it, I'm at choice about how I want to behave and how I want to intervene both at the micro level, which is the personal and interpersonal, as well as the macro level, which is, you know, systemic community kind of um, places and organizations. Mm -hmm. It's very challenging. People get really threatened by the notion that they have a privilege because I think, again, it makes them feel guilty. And they, you know, they want to feel good. They want to feel, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Why are you saying this about me? I didn't do anything. That's right. They didn't do anything. They just were born white. And so they partake of this unconsciously. But you have to become aware of it at a certain point. I feel if you want to live with some integrity, living in the United States. There's a lot of good people that are doing amazing work and a lot of good white people doing amazing work. Right. How do you create that bridge, if you will, to engage in the dialogue mm -hmm. without having people feel like they have the, the stigma of racism weighing on their shoulders as a, an individual? Right. I personally believe that what we do with these films is actually an equal opportunity learning session. Having said that, I do believe that people go through all kinds of feelings. Some people feel guilty. Some people feel embarrassed. Some people cry some people have a whole well there's a whole range of reactions that happen that's not really my concern my concern is how do we as a society begin to learn how to talk about things that are hard and how do we do that without getting trapped in a dualistic dynamic that says i'm right and you're wrong only i think that as a nation, as a world, we need to expand our capacity to understand what it means to be paradoxical beings. We as people are able to be wonderful and we can also be horrible. You know, we have our good side and we have our shadow side. And that being said, if we do not begin to cultivate the capacity to have difficult conversations, then what happens is we get lost in a world of denial we get lost in a world where equality cannot live. And that is the point of being able to talk about this stuff. There is a dynamic that always happens. And I wanted to be able to create something where white folks could take the lead and where they could actually teach, um, not by having all the answers, but by being able to share their process. And and have that offered as an invitation for other people to engage in a process of learning. Because, as we know, uh, dealing with oppression is a process. And, of course, that's where we all get stuck. We want to be politically correct. And I think Tim Wise really talks about what happens with white people when they get stuck in and also haven't had the experience. I mean, you know, we live in the Bay Area, but I travel across the country and uh, it's pretty scary out there. Uh, for white folks who just do not have any interactions with people of color at all. And so he describes that dynamic very well. That's the kind of thing we're trying to address with this movie. And so when young white people say, and it is a litany of things, um, they're making a mountain out of a molehill, they're exaggerating, they're hypersensitive, they make everything about race, all of those comments 
are about being able to have been in this white space for all your life and never have to think about how that was a racialized space so that when a person of color brings up racism to most white people, particularly young white people who have no sort of historical memory of race, let alone contemporary understanding, to them it's like, well, race wasn't in the room until you brought it up, right? Race was not a problem until the black person says it or the Latino says it or the Asian Pacific Islander or the indigenous person brings it up. Then race is in the room because they've, again, never had to think of their space as racialized space because they don't know the stories of their own parents. How did their parents get that house? So, how do you address the elephant in the room in a constructive way? Well, my particular style grows out of a couple of things. One is that I believe in the basic goodness of human beings. And I don't mean that superficially. I mean that sometimes that's a lot of work to really maintain that particular perspective. But because I believe that, I think people want to be good. They want to do the best that they possibly can. And so I speak to that strength. A lot of times I find that within the movement, we are so geared towards fighting against mm -hmm. and not really thinking about what we're fighting for. Thank you. And, and that that is where we get stuck sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how to get unstuck, if you will. <laughs> well, I'd actually like to respond to that both at a personal level and then at maybe at a broader level. My particular way of getting unstuck is through spiritual practice. I mean, I would say I would call myself a spiritual warrior. The practice that calls me most is meditation and chanting and I meditate and I chant to move through not fly over or to go around difficult situations it is a practice and I think that that carries me to being able to extrapolate on that and say being able to move through hard things is something we have to practice it actually means obtaining a set of skills that are larger than one's own personal perspective and being able to apply that in such a way that when hard things come up, I can maintain my humanity and I allow you to maintain yours. I, I want to talk about Peggy McIntosh for a minute because I mm -hmm. think she exemplifies in many ways part of that process of being able to move forward. Part of, part of what you need to do is you have to be able to critically assess where you are and not just assess what's going on that's wrong outside, but how it is that I'm participating on the inside. I like to talk about Peggy here because Peggy went through a very painful process of looking inside to see how she as a white person benefited from moving through a system that is in her favor. And the process that she went through was asking herself the question, how do I benefit besides education, the education that I received and the educational system itself, how do I benefit? And what she had to go through produced the article that's so popular, the Unpacking the Knapsack of White Privilege, which is sort of a basic article of what does it mean to be white and move through the world. And she very much uh, is able now to take a stand about creating a society that's equitable because she understands the part that she plays in keeping it from being that way and she was able to share that with so many people. But people don't want to do that introspective part because that's where the pain comes up. Oh my God, maybe I'm not such a good person after all. 
and to be able to move through that to apply it to how I'm part of a system is a very empowering thing, actually. And I ask myself, is there anything except the whole system of knowledge which is working in my favor here at the Wellesley Center for Research on Women? And my conscious mind said, nope. But I asked it to really think on this. And and asked on a daily basis in down-to-earth ways, is there anything except the system of, of knowledge that is working for me? And once again, my mind said, nope. And I had to pray on it. And I asked my unconscious mind to answer my question. If I have anything I didn't earn by contrast with my African-American friends in this building, show me. And after three months, 46 examples had swum up, most of them in the middle of the night. And if I didn't flick on a light and write them down, they'd be gone by morning because I didn't want to know them. They were messing up my view of myself as a person who'd earned everything I had. Sometimes we think that white people are around in this society being disaffected by racism. The fact of the matter is is that they're very much affected. Can you talk about how that yeah. happens? I'd like, I'd like to give actually two examples, from one from a white perspective and one from a person of color's perspective. And I'm going to refer back to Peggy. She talks about her process of writing the article that she did later on about being able to be able to move more freely in a in a world that isn't hampered by you know who are the good people who are the bad people and all the stereotypes that come along with that i think a very poignant example of the difference between being white and being a person of color and of course this is not an absolute this is an example um is given by francie kendall in the film when she talks about a conversation that she had with a latina uh, about becoming friends and that what this woman said to her literally rocked her world. I think what's so powerful about this is that it's the kind of story that when it's told a white person could easily say she's being hypersensitive. She doesn't have it right. Instead of listening to the story and really hearing this person's experience without making it right or wrong. And that is one of the main points of being able to participate in conversations of the heart. We need to cultivate the capacity to listen and to hear how somebody else has a, an experience that's different from our own and to respect that and handle it as if it were true. When we get locked into there is only one truth, we miss the opportunity to mine the gold, to mine the richness of the multiple ways that we walk through the world and being able to hear and understand those different kinds of ways of being actually make us bigger and broader and more multi-layered and multi-textured. We were talking about friendships and those of us who are white are fre frequently interested in friendships and we want to be somebody's friend, particularly with people of color. And this Latina said to me, you know, when you want to be my friend, you decide you want to be my friend. You get up and you walk across the room. You shake hands. You say, hi, my name is Francie Kendall. What's your name? And you begin a relationship. When people of color decide that they will again try to be friends with a white person, we are crawling on our... And this is what this woman said. I'll never forget it. 
We are crawling on our knees over the broken shards of relationships that where we thought we could trust someone. Finally, I know that you have intent of this video to create powerful dialogue about this issue and creating those bridges. Yeah, I mean, I think the purpose is to have powerful dialogue so that people can change. You know, that's what we want. We want change. We want people to be able to become conscious so that they can make different choices. Different choices? Yes, can different choices. That? Yeah, I think that... Uh, you know, actually, let me say it like this. Uh, I remember uh, being a student and studying a German philosopher by the name of Hegel. And he, he says it very clearly. He says, in the master-slave dynamic or the master-servant dynamic, the master doesn't have to know the world of the slave or the servant, but the very existence of the slave and the servant depends upon knowing the world of the master. That means that something's missing. The master is not having a full range of color and, and context for walking through the world. And the slave or the servant is also missing something, which is freedom. And wouldn't it be powerful if we were able to imagine a dynamic world where we were free, able to be at the fullest of our potential as human beings and creating a society where everyone has an opportunity to be the best that they could possibly be. That's the voice of Dr. Shakti Butler, who is the executive director of the World Trust Educational Services. She has produced and directed the groundbreaking documentaries The Way Home and Light in the Shadows. Her newest film, titled Mirrors of Privilege, Making Whiteness Visible, will be premiering on Saturday, October 7th at 7 in the evening at the First Congregational Church of Oakland, located at 2501 Harrison Street at 27th. For more information about the event and film, you can call 510-632-5156 or visit the World Trust on the World Wide Web at worldtrust.org. You're listening to Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. What do a Puerto Rican, metrosexual, short Jewish woman, and a biracial lesbian have in common? The third annual George Bush Going Away Party, an evening of political comedy. The third annual George Bush Going Away Party, like the first two, raises awareness and funds for the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors and their project, Military Out of Our Schools Program. This Going Away Party for George is taking place October 14th in San Francisco. Here to talk about this event is Alana Devich, who's in the studio with me and hails from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And by phone, I have Bill Santiago, who's escaped a career in journalism by becoming a stand-up comic. Being from Puerto Rico, he has toured nationally with his very successful one-man show, Spanglish 101. We start by having Bill and Alana bid farewell, hopefully, to George Bush. <laughs> I was going to say, it'd be nice if he would actually leave. I don't know why he doesn't listen to us. It's getting late. We've got a lot to do in the morning. We've got a mess to clean up. Oh, no, really, we don't need any more help. Thank you. <laughs> so leave, and then uh, let's not see you again, ever. Both of you have been on the show before, on the lineup. So what resonates with you that makes you want to do it again? 
I just enjoy having a room full of people that are already on the same page, at least for one thing. We all agree we'd like for George Bush to go. So it's sort of, that's the starting point, and let's just go on from there and laugh a lot. Yeah, I kind of enjoy that. It gives you a chance to say things that you normally wouldn't have the uh, the, the blank check of freedom to, uh, to go ahead and put out there, you know, because uh, they are already on the same page. Although that can be a problem. I kind of like a little resistance, too. I enjoy that very much. I wanted to maybe ask you, Bill, uh, since you're in back and forth from New York and San Francisco, and I know that you've had a lot of success with Spanglish 101, and this past May you filmed a special for Comedy Central where you got a standing ovation at the Hudson Theater. I wanted to ask you, are those assumptions that you make based on these two cities that are very diverse that that it's it's safer or are, are there some risks being taken there the only place that i can do the kind of show that i'm going to do at the herb theater is in san francisco you know that doesn't fly anywhere else you the, the manager won't put up with it no one it's a, it's a very tricky thing to uh, to get off I, I i can't have the kind of career i want if uh, that's all i'm going to be uh, talking about so i kind of like pick and choose uh, where I am going to do uh, what. The Comedy Central thing uh, was not overtly uh, political, uh, uh, and uh, it was an entirely uh, different feeling. But there's a difference between, uh, for instance, talking Spanglish and just having the fact of that be a statement that the country is changing in a certain direction, and despite any uh, uh, laws you might put in place, you're not going to be able to... Uh, suppress that or, or, or force people to abandon a language and a, and, and a heritage. And no matter what you do, you know, the, the, the fact that the, uh, there's been a tectonic demographic shift, uh, it, it, that's not going to change. It's a reality that you have to uh, deal with. But that's very different than, for instance, Hugo Chavez going to the UN and saying, you know, the devil, <laughs> which I enjoy a lot, too. Yeah, well, you guys could open with the smell of sulfur, I imagine. Yeah, I think it's going to be a big production number. Sulfur, <laughs> smoke, lights, it's going to be great. Right. A big dance number, it's going to be wonderful. Right. <laughs> Alana, I wanted to ask you, uh, your bio states that you're no different than any other half-black, half-white lesbian comedian, which puts you in a very unique position to speak for all like you. All of us. Oh, all, all, all. Is there anything that you might be grateful for with this administration? You know, it's funny. I, I tend to really enjoy being talking from a place of being very different. And it's just very funny because right now I feel like there's nobody that doesn't understand that there are a lot of people getting the short end of the stick right now. And so in a way, it just me makes a lot of more audiences on my side. Like people are like, this is someone talking from a perspective of someone who is disenfranchised quite often. And we support that. We support hearing that voice being spoken. And we heard Bill talk about what it might be like for different audiences. There's certain givens that come with doing a performance in San Francisco versus maybe Minnesota. Oh, certainly. I started doing comedy out in Boston, which I love. That's sort of where I cut my teeth. And I moved to San Francisco a few years ago. And what's interesting to me about being out here is there's so much more acceptance of diversity. This is not news to anybody. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like it makes every time I go on stage a little bit easier to get people on my side, which means I have to sort of work on other aspects of my jokes. In Boston, I really had to f kind of fight to get people to listen to me, to get them to be on my side at all, um, which I enjoyed. I kind of enjoyed that challenge. But right now I'm sort of 
taking a little comfort and relaxing a little bit and just letting people agree with me a little bit. Uh huh. So do you feel like being in someplace safe actually allows for you to take more risks with the work itself? Is that what you're saying? I think it just allows me to work differently. Okay. Whereas when I was first starting in Boston, I really had to work on getting people just to listen and to be willing to be open to what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Here, I feel like people are already willing to be open to it. So I just can be funny. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different challenge. Now, Bill, what do you think about that? Do you think that there is something to be said for feeling safe where you could try new material or you could take that you yeah, know, absolutely. out in the limb? Yeah, San Francisco is like the, the, the best place uh, to, develop, to develop in that way. You know, any idea that you have, that's a place where people will sit and listen and go with it on you. And it gives you a, a confidence in developing the, the idea. And once, once, you're, once you've got the bit... Uh, honed and uh, and polished and you're, you're you're really sure and you have a lot of conviction in it you can take anywhere else san francisco lets you get it uh, rock solid and people are going with you you know but it can be deceptive because uh, the second uh, you uh, leave san francisco you're dealing with a very very different mix audience wise you know i was in minnesota recently and you know the, the most memorable interaction was you know once you start in with the politics people up front they just get it very offended and vocal about it and they start challenging you and then it turns into a real show it's wonderful you have to think on your feet you know and, uh, and still keep it entertaining and that's what it's most fun with me and then sometimes when everyone's on your side it's almost a little disappointing actually it's a little too easy too easy <laughs> also when you say something that's uh, just outside of the boundaries of their uh, of their sensibilities they will have none of it you know? <laughs> the arms <And> are crossed <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. They can't see the humor in it, so you're dealing with a whole different type of group mentality. And, you know, when you're on stage, what you want is people to really open up whatever their sensibilities are. You want to push that edge a little bit. Just heard the voice of Bill Santiago, and he's on the phone along with Alana Devich, who's here in the studio, and they're both part of the upcoming third annual George Bush Going Away Party that's going to be taking place on October 14th at the Herbst Theater, and it's a benefit for Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors and their project Military Out of Our Schools. And I wanted to end with asking both of you as comedians, how do you make the jokes of what might be considered serious matters such as immigration, gay rights, the war, without seeming irreverent, or does that even matter? You're going for the irreverent. You're going for the gut impulse. You know, what is it about the situation that drives you crazy, that makes you want to scream? But it can reach an overload level, and sometimes you don't even want to go there. You know, it's very hard to sit there and and, and want to scream, and at the same time be so poisoned with it and know that nothing really is getting done, nothing's changing, and we have to do this uh, going away party for the third time. You know, there's uh, there's something uh, about it that is very distressing, and it's, it's a real personal challenge to get at the, uh, to, to stay on that frequency, to look for that humor. It's there. It's there. It's black. Talk about 9-11 now. People, people uh, even in New York, are um, open to that, but it's taken, taken a while. You mean actually put it in your act? Yeah, you can talk about it now. People are very, uh, you know, they've, they've gone through that grieving period now, and in certain circumstances, they're willing to uh, hear about it in a comedic context, you know. What do you think, Alana? What are your thoughts? Um, I think it's it's really important to express the frustration that I feel and to express the anger that I feel without 
necessarily shoving anything down people's throats or feeling like I'm saying something that everyone else has said. We all know we're going to this show to not like George W. Bush. So to me, the challenge is how do I how do I make it personal? I, I like to speak from my own personal experience. So I just make it just really try to make it really authentic to my own daily experience. Does you wait this show tired of holding back? I don't want to give any of it away. I am going to take full advantage of the fact that, you know, we're in San Francisco and that's where freedom of the speech is an extreme concept. And uh, and that's the kind of mood I'm in, you know. I, I'm, I'm tired of holding back. I, I didn't have cable for like, uh, I, I wasn't even watching the news for like a year and a half because I couldn't take it anymore and I just got it again. And you're screaming all over again, but it's a real like internal primal thing. You, you just can't believe this is the world that uh, that you live in, you know, and that uh, the people who are getting away with it are. It's, it's kind of a burning man type of catharsis, but with a real uh, specific grievance, you know. You just heard Bill Santiago and Alana Devich, both who are part of the third annual George Bush Going Away Party, along with Lisa Godoldig and George Proops. This is a benefit for the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors. This event is taking place on Saturday, October 14th, starting at 8 p.m. at the Herbst Theater located at 401 Van Ness Avenue at McAllister. This is Cover to Cover Open Book. If you have any questions or comments about what you just heard, you can call us at our listener comment line at 510-848-6767, extension 622, or email me, amelia, at kpfa.org. With Erica Bridgman at the controls, I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. KPFA's Fall 2006 Fund Drive begins